0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is David Weston. David is a former maths and science teacher with over 10 years experience. He is the founder and chief executive of the Teacher Development Trust. In March 2015, he was appointed by the Department for Education as Chair of the Teachers' Professional Development Expert Group. He was a founding director of the Charter College of Teaching. David has also written and spoken extensively in the media about teaching and teacher development, and has had a number of radio and TV appearances discussing teaching and LGBT issues. David also co-authored with Bridget Clay, Unleashing Great Teaching, The Secrets to Effective Teacher Development. David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's The pleasure's all mine, I can assure you. To start us off, could you share a little bit about, about you, who you are, uh, and your career today, please?
1: Yes, certainly. Um, well, as you've said, I was a, I was a teacher for 10 years, and um, I'd like to pretend um, that you know you hear some people say, I always knew from the age of three I wanted to, you know, help young people and I became a teacher. In, in all honesty, I was at university and I was enjoying it so much. I actually did a PGCE so I could stay at university for another year, um, and which is is not particularly inspiring as stories go. But um, I was really loving it. And and then I, I got into teaching and I, I genuinely was enjoying it. Um But obviously at the end of that, I'd been at university for quite a few years and thought, well, I probably need to get a job now. And um, I ended up going back to the school where I'd been a student and I taught there for a year and a half, Um, which was great in many ways, because you didn't have to learn anything about the timetable or the way things worked or indeed most of the staff, you know, I kind of knew most of that. And I could focus just on the teaching. Um, And then I I went on for the next few years and I taught in a few different schools. Um, But some of some of it was part time. And uh, I was also wearing another hat of also teaching and competing as a ballroom dancer. So that's pretty unusual. Um, And then a little bit later on in my career, I then got quite seriously ill and then. As I was getting better from that, I then really jumped into teaching both feet and was really loving it. And um, by the time I got to 2012, sort of bursting out in all directions with loads of different ideas. And after a chance conversation, um, and I'd been really interested in professional development of teachers, I um, ended up setting up the charity, the Teacher Development Trust. And the idea is that government gets interested for sort of six to 12 months in professional development. And then you get a new secretary of state and they say, oh, this sounds dull. We won't bother. And professional development for teachers goes in and out of fashion. Um, So many times we just thought, look, we need to create an organization that will relentlessly talk about the value of professional learning, the value of the sorts of schools with these vibrant research rich staff rooms, which are buzzing with ideas where people are teaching with the collective wisdom of the whole profession and campaign for it help schools do it and help providers of expertise in CPD connect to it. So hence the Teacher Development Trust uh, founded in 2012 and we've been going ever since and really focusing on providing the tools and training and networks for school leaders who say, I want my school to be absolutely brilliant for helping teachers get better at what they do, a place where they thrive. So uh, that's, that's been our focus as a trust. Right, so it kind of leads
0: me on to the, the next question because I, I teach in Scotland and uh, we don't really know much about the the Teacher Development Trust, and I, I've quite a few of my listeners are based in Scotland. Can you go a little bit further, also, explain what exactly is the Teacher Development Trust? You 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 kind of touched on it there, and and could you describe what what it does on a on a daily, weekly, monthly basis?
1: Yes, certainly. So it's a charity, um and I set it up with some other school leaders and teachers, and. Um, Probably the most important thing for anyone from a school listening to is that schools join us and they tend to go on a journey with us for two, three, four, five years. Um, And the first thing we do is we work with those school leaders and we review their organisation and say, how effective are you at improving your staff? So we look at the culture of the institution, how well people collaborate, how well meetings are run, how well appraisal works, how well school development plans connect with appraisal and professional development. How well people feel that the training offer meets their needs and helps them develop in their careers, how connected they are to research, how well they're evaluating the impact of what they do, how they're connecting professional development and thinking about curriculum and um, how they're making sure that the teacher's learning is having impact on the children's learning, Um, all the way through to the structures and the processes and keeping records. It's everything to do with helping people get better at what they do. And ultimately it's all about getting more traction. And one of the things you see more often than anything else is people saying, oh, I don't know, we go through the motions of CPD, but somehow doesn't really seem to make that much difference. I just don't know if it's helping. And when it's right, then not only is the culture fantastic, but people are really moving forward. So on the day by day basis, we are doing training for school leaders. We are interviewing staff and finding out what's really going on the ground in those schools. We're coaching people and helping them come up with change plans so they can improve what's going on in their school. We're training people as coaches. We're training them in lesson study. We're putting on events about uh, how you can evaluate impact and how you can um, improve performance management, those sorts of things. And then outside of that, we work with um, governments around the world and organizations and we help them understand how they can make better policy choices so that as teachers, we're looked after better. We can access better expertise and uh, we're flourishing in our profession.
0: But we're going to touch on some of those subjects as we go through, and we're going to touch on some of the things that I've picked out from looking at the, the website and the, and the work of the Teacher Development Trust and also from your book, which I, I've got here, Unleashing Great Teaching that you co-wrote with Bridget Clay. So I'd like to start with with asking you, what is the, the purpose of professional
1: learning for teachers and school leaders? I, I think it's, um, it's twofold, really. Um, I mean, I would say the primary purpose, as a profession, we are there to help children learn. And that's the primary purpose of our profession. And therefore, our professional learning, its primary purpose has got to be helping us help children learn. Um, but the secondary purpose is supporting us as professionals. So number one, it has to help us help children learn. And number two, it has to help us feel like professionals, feel connected to each other, gain the wisdom that we need, but also develop in ourselves. Because if we're going to be a profession that's all about the learning of children, we also need to be a profession that's about the learning of ourselves as well. So um, I would always say those two things. We always say powerful professional learning helps teachers thrive and children succeed Um, and those are the two important things that it has to do and and really you can't do one without the other I don't think there's any point trying to design professional learning that isn't helping you flourish in your career and is just kind of flogging you to death to make results improve but similarly if you if it's making you feel really great about yourself but it's not actually helping young people I'm not really sure there's any point in that either.
0: Certainly, I like that. That needs to have two points. So it brings me on to, in in your book, you you talk a lot about what's called the responsive professional learning cycle. Could you share the ideas behind the responsive professional learning cycle?
1: Absolutely. I'm grabbing my copy of the book as we go. So I think um, when Bridges and I were writing this, we spent a lot of time um, chatting to schools about these sorts of inquiry models, things like lesson study, action research triads all these sorts of things and one of the things that we commonly found is that people find it very challenging to come up with a structure that really works well and one of the reasons what well one of the things that can happen a lot is that people do a very superficial approach so often people say oh i don't know um, we're going to look at independent learning and then let's have a try at something and read a blog and try something out and see how did it go and It doesn't feel as though they've really got to the heart of the issue it doesn't feel like um, this is something where they're really gaining depth of expertise in the process so we came up with this cycle um, which is just one way of mapping out the change and the the first part of it is what we call the diagnostic section so number one really thinking with clarity um, what are we trying to change what's the issue here what's our goal what are our needs as professionals and then Unpicking the assumptions underneath that. So if I say I want my children to be more independent as learners, I want my pupils or or students to be, then that has an assumption that says they're not independent enough now. So I need to test that assumption because one of the most problematic things is when people say, look, I think this is a problem, let's try and fix it. But then they spend ages trying to fix a problem. They later discover wasn't the problem. So if I think my children aren't independent enough, I need to then say, "Okay, well, what would independence look like? and what what does non-independence look like and then just test that that really is the problem so if I think actually children are not going home and doing their own study because they just don't have the habits then maybe I need to survey the children maybe I need to um, find out a little bit about what they do when they go home maybe I need to ask them why do you think you don't go home and do study and actually I might in that process discover that actually for for many of my students it's not the habit it's actually the fact they don't have the right home learning or maybe we're not setting things in a way that's successful enough or maybe the language the level of language you're using is too high and they're not really able to access it um, and it's only by checking those assumptions that we can make sure we're really focusing on a thing that makes a difference and in the process of checking assumptions we also clarify what the difficulty is so as teachers we really need to think okay is is this really the problem or is it something else having done that If I say, okay, right, no, so it is habits of study, for example, um, and the other things seem to be fine, then at that stage, I then need to explore. So I need to research, um, and we spend quite a lot of time in the book giving people ideas of where to search, what would make a really reliable sort of set of studies. Um, For example, we really um, encourage people to say, if you're looking about independent learning, then type in the phrase independent learning, and then in Google, add the phrase Systematic review because that will be a review of all of the studies about independent learning. And then look through those reviews because someone else there will have scoured the earth for all of the studies around that topic and then will have summarized them for you. Um, you, You won't end up just picking one study, which maybe turned out to be the really dodgy one that everyone else disbelieves. It'll look at them all really carefully. So we say explore it. Don't just look at what research says, though, explore what some real experts say, explore what your colleagues say. Um, and then plan it, prepare it, talk about what it should look like if it works, work out what you'll see if it's making a difference and then try it out and actually try this out, put the formative assessment in there, check it's working, come back, reflect on it and then of course at that stage you might want to iterate through that a few times, you might want to go back a few times and have another go and then eventually you come back to the beginning and say is this still an issue, is this something we need to develop further, Are we sure we need to, or do we want to move on to something else? And so it is a cycle and each part of the cycle has many cycles. You've got your assumption checking part, you've got your implementation part, but overall you have to go round and round and then you're constantly looking for the next thing and the next thing or deepening the existing thing. So it's responsive because you're constantly checking if you've made a difference yet, you're constantly checking your assumptions and you're constantly evaluating. Um, It's about learning because you're always exploring, you're challenging your assumptions. And it's a cycle because it never stops.
0: Right, thank you. Um, we're going to kind of unpick a few, a little bits of that. And, and you mentioned a lot there that we need to constantly check and, and, and reflect. Could you speak to the importance of being an evaluative practitioner and continually assessing the impact of your teaching?
1: Yes, um, and, and evaluative practitioner is a, a fantastic phrase that my uh, uh, co-author, Bridget Clay, really focused on. And... Essentially, it's a, mind sh- it's a mindset shift, and it says that look, I'm a professional, everything I do should have an impact on my students. So if you're giving me um, an idea, let's say you someone's given me a copy of Teach Like a Champion 2.0, and I've got this technique, um, I shouldn't at any stage just say, here's a thing, I should copy the thing, and if I copied the thing well, then I'm a good teacher. I should always be saying, yeah, but is it really making a difference? Um, And an evaluative practitioner um, is really following that principle that you know John Hattie talks about, teacher no value impact. Um, But it also means that in order to evaluate, I need to understand what I'm changing. So if I'm going to be using, say, a cold call approach from Teach Like a Champion, then I need to first of all identify: okay, what's the problem now? So I use the responsive learning cycle. What's the problem? Why am I using cold call? I think some children aren't engaging because I'm not calling them enough or they're not volunteering because they're either trying to get away with it or they're not confident enough. So I'll check that. Having identified that it was a mixture of confidence and also maybe a bit getting away with it, I then need to, when I'm implementing this, well, I need to evaluate the impact it's having. So what formative assessments could I use? Do I want to capture some video? Do I want to do some surveys? Do I want to... Um, just quickly grab two or three of the students at the end of the lesson and quickly have a chat with them and just reflect what the difference was. Um, do I want someone else in the room evaluating what's happening? Do I maybe identify there's three or four students who perhaps are underperforming? And so do I want to see what happens over the next two to three months of me using cold call? But constantly saying, have I made a difference yet? And that question forces you to ask, what would a difference look like? And it really is formative assessment. It's, it's all really focused on what's the difference I'm trying to make and how well I know I've made it. Um, and being an evaluative practitioner is a discipline because it never lets you just try something out without thinking, how am I going to know if it's worked?
0: I like that idea of, of it being a discipline and a, and a, and a mindset and constantly a, a value in what is the impact on the, on the young people. You call culture the make or break of professional learning. Could you share why, why that is and how do we get culture right?
1: Yeah, we um, and the reason we say that culture is the make or break is because um, I remember um, Bridget and I when she was working at Teach Development Trust as well. And now, my, you know, my current colleagues as well. We very commonly meet school leaders who say, right, I really buy into the idea that professional learning should be better please help us implement and then they'll put in something they've heard about so it could be please help us implement lesson study or discipline inquiry or instructional coaching or something and they find a really good implementation and they just kind of introduce it into their school and then they're really shocked because everyone is really grumpy and it didn't work very well and it's not having the impact and they're having to use loads of sticks and carrots to try and get people to engage in it and it's because of the culture the culture is not right and that's because Um, people's habits, people's expectations, the level of communication and the the quality of relationships um, are not strong enough to support that approach. And uh, really good learning requires really high trust. It's just the same as a classroom, Um, a classroom in which there are poor learning habits and there's a low trust environment and there's disruption and there's confusion. Um, A really great technique just won't work. And need to establish that really great, warm, trusting, open, highly community culture, where there are high expectations of each other, um, and only then can you make this stuff work. So we call it the make or break break of professional learning because if you try and introduce a really rich professional learning approach in a school with a really toxic culture, it won't work. However, there is. There's no magic wand or a lever you can pull that just says, you know, turn the volume up on culture, make the culture better. And actually, we change the culture by getting people to do different things and by learning a new way of being. So, the way you change the culture is by gradually introducing approaches that get people used to a new way of thinking and being. Um, you teach them new structures and processes. You teach them new ways to communicate with each other. You allow people just enough vulnerability with each other that they learn that they can trust each other. Um, you very quickly raise expectations and tackle people who are maybe not dealing with things the right way Um, and that's how you begin to change these things and over time trust is built and we always say that um, if you are a school that maybe can identify at the moment you have a very poor culture and there's a lot of toxicity and a lot of resistance and you aspire to be a school with a fantastic culture you can't just make the leap in one bound You, you start with smaller steps Um, So a school where things are really not good at the minute, we might say, look, why don't you just, um, you know, once a week, once a fortnight at staff briefing, get someone to stand up and just say, here's a thing I tried. And actually, I was nominated by this person who thought it was really good. Um, Now, that's not great professional learning. It's a bit superficial, but it's a good first step because it begins to get people to say, oh, actually, it's okay to kind of talk about learning. People are beginning to talk about it. You'll want to move beyond that step. Because otherwise, it's just tips and tricks. Here's a thing. Here's another post-it note. Um, but it's an important first step. So getting that culture right takes time. Um, I've rarely seen a school that's transformed its culture completely in less than three years. Even a small school, um, they can make great strides, but it does it does take a while certainly
0: does. I like to, to follow that up with the, the idea that I believe that, that school leaders should, should model professional learning themselves because we're in a building where we're learning to focus and it's not just teachers that need to learn, the school leaders need to learn as well. So how important do you
1: think that is? Massively important. And there's a number of aspects of modeling. Um, there's modeling in, let me show what I do. Um, so as a leader, I should constantly be talking about what I'm reading. Um, how I've learned, how I've, how I've changed and improved, when I've made mistakes, um, invite other people to critique what I'm doing, please, would anyone else give me some challenge? I'd really welcome that. And if someone says, actually, um, can I disagree with you? To go, oh, that's fantastic. I really love being disagreed with, You know, it's really great. And it levels the playing field and I'm modeling how open I am, which allows other people to do the same and it's modeling saying wow actually yeah taking risks and trying new things is great so here's a new system we have to implement and I know everyone's going to find that challenging so I'm going to do it first and I'm going to you know I'm going to be at the cutting edge of all of the problems and then I'll explain how I've learned to adapt and the feedback I've given uh, and then you can see how that helps so that that's at one level of modeling so it's how I'm learning myself it's being vulnerable first and taking risks first but 3rd It's um, putting your money where your mouth is. And if I'm saying learning is really important, then if I can see that there is a massive crunch coming up where everyone has loads of reports, loads of parents' evenings, loads of duties, loads of interventions, and there's loads of CPD, then I have to say, right, which one of those ones is more important? I can't say they're all just as important um, because in the end, the CPD is going to be the one that doesn't have the deadline that week. We'll say, oh, put that back. And everybody learns it's less important than all the other things. And if I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, I have to say, actually, we're going to slip that deadline, or we're going to rearrange that meeting, or actually, I'm going to find another way that you don't have to do those duties. Um, so schools that do this really well, they very publicly show staff, right? Here's the blank timetable for next year. The first thing we've put in are the professional learning sessions, and they are completely fixed. Nothing is changing those. Then we'll put in, you know, some of the other the other meetings, and then we'll put in some of the parents' evenings but that's in the other slots, the non-professional learning slots. Um, Similarly, um, in performance management, the number of schools who say, oh, CPD is really important, but by the way, your three performance management priorities are data, school improvement, main priority, which is, I don't know, linked to uh, another vaguely data or or Ofsted or inspectorate or something driven uh, approach. Um, And then maybe the final one could be vaguely to do with your career or something, but they don't say, no, actually, this is all about your learning and how it impacts on young people. Um, and so what are they talking about? SLT meetings. Are senior leaders modeling that and saying, well, actually, of course, every single senior leaders meeting we have, we're going to have teaching and learning and CPD is the first thing we talk about. How's that person learning? How are they improving? Talk to me about the professional learning. How is that program having impact? How are these people engaging in research? If it's something you only mention now and again, you're not modeling it. So it's all these things. Am I walking the walk of professional learning is the most important for me, for others? And am I the one showing them how to be vulnerable, how to be open to feedback?
0: Absolutely. And I, and I would probably hasten to, hasten to say that the schools where that actually happens are probably one of the the happiest schools to, to work in for teachers because we're seeing learn all the time and it's part of our of our daily business that then has a significant impact on student outcomes. Really? going to move on a little bit. I, I was fascinated by your research, Edith Talk, on schools that unleash great teaching. And in that, you spoke a little bit about teacher expertise. So could you could you share, how how does a teacher become an expert teacher and what do expert teachers do
1: differently? So my favourite paper on this is by uh, a researcher called Tracy Hogan, um, which she published in 2003, because for some reason, Um, the 80s and 90s in particular were just the heyday for this type of research and so many studies were done where they took very experienced teachers and teachers who were identified by colleagues as being really effective and then we compared them to much less experienced teachers and they did all sorts of things. They interviewed them, they observed lessons, they got people to narrate lessons they were watching, they got them to recall lessons, they got them to um, plan lessons and compare the plans, um, they put them in different scenarios and through all of that across different phases, different year groups, different subjects, they were really consistently finding uh, a certain few findings. And interestingly, there have been a few more recent studies um, in the last five years or so, which are still finding the same things. Um, and it's fascinating. It essentially says that when you're an expert teacher, you you think, you perceive, you act in a very different way than when you're a non-expert teacher. Um, and you, you're expert in a certain area. So you might be really expert in say teaching as if you're in, you know, secondary sort of level you might be well i'm really expert in teaching uh, maths to 14 15 year olds for example um and it but if you make me teach maths to eight-year-olds then i won't be an expert anymore and i'll kind of revert back to that novice stage so what are the key differences uh, number one experts see the classroom differently um so imagine Do you remember the first time you started learning to drive? Everything was new. It was different. It was unfamiliar sitting in that seat. There were loads of things surrounding you and it just, it was slightly overwhelming and so many things are happening and you don't know where to look and then you're not looking in the right place and your instructor saying, look over there, look at that. And you, you didn't even see it because you don't know which details to focus on. When you're an experienced driver, Essentially, everything around you is completely normal and the only thing that jumps out at you is something unusual, something odd. You know where to direct your attention and the things that are important jump out at you. Exactly the same is true of teachers. So an experienced teacher will take in much more of the classroom. They'll be able to much more rapidly make an assessment of, okay, I don't need to pay attention to those things. This is jumping out at me. And it's not a conscious process. Their brains are so full of examples of classrooms and what they look like and how they got there and what happens next. That they can immediately spot the things that they need to spot that are important um, that makes them much more efficient at seeing what's happening much more efficient at remembering what's happening because they seem to remember the key moments um, and much more efficient at spotting when to act so uh, uh, an experienced teacher will spot far earlier the signs of misbehaviour is about to happen and they'll be able to just act much more quickly so they, their perception is completely different um, similarly when they're listening to children answering questions or when they're looking at work they've seen so many examples of children answering and drawing and writing and explaining that they can much more quickly say okay i can see that's going to be an issue and either it's an issue now or that's going to be an issue in a couple of years time let's correct it so they perceive differently they act differently because they act earlier on issues they tend to really focus on the key learning moments um, this okay look this is the key concept this is the one we have to master today Um, or okay this is the question everyone needs to answer or actually that misconception is the one I'm most looking out for and I need to deal with Um, because they understand the topic they understand the flow how it's developed from what happened before and after they can much more quickly act on the right things and also um, expert teachers tend to focus a lot more on learning behaviors and learning moments and they worry a lot less about Uh, classroom management so we all know when you start teaching you're like oh no i just need to get them all to sit down and shut up and listen and uh, novice teachers are much more anxious about behavioral issues um, and what people are doing in moment one moment two moment three whereas the expert teacher is actually much more concerned about are they engaged are they thinking about the right things are they explaining the right things and then planning planning is also different so an expert teacher plans much more rapidly they plan generally over the over a period of two or three lessons at least because they're saying well over this group of lessons we need to cover these sorts of things and they focus on the flow they focus on the key activities they focus on the key questions and we all know when you get to be an experienced teacher you can sort of jot down the key things I'm going to use that exercise that page this and then the rest of it just fits together in your head whereas when you start as a teacher you're thinking right in minute one I will stand by the door I will open the door I will say this I will walk in and of course, you can't then figure out how you'll deal with 101 different scenarios because you just haven't got it in your head. You haven't got the automaticity. So, it, different insights, different practices, different planning, um, different perception. Um, and then, related to that, as a novice teacher, you don't really know what to expect. You don't quite know what good looks like and what not good looks like. And you don't really have many expectations of children in your head already. So you have, you, you have these much more malleable views of what's possible, whereas, and this is a, a potential problem, an expert teacher tends to say, oh, I've seen kind of, you know, children a bit like you who do that, and therefore you'll probably be capable of this. And the problem as we get more expert is we, we cannot help ourselves, but we tend to compare children to who we've seen before. And sometimes that means we limit their expectations and say, well, you'll probably achieve this. Um, and so that's the challenge for us as more experienced teachers. We need to challenge what we believe is possible. Yeah, that's a,
0: a good example of the curse of knowledge over time that you you develop and you know on the child So thinking back linking back to, to professional learning, then should a, should our professional learning differ between an expert teacher and a novice teacher? And and then how would a school manage that?
1: Um sometimes, yes. Um and bearing in mind it's quite difficult. So so expertise, uh, this this phrase expertise, the trouble is it in our heads, um, when we're talking cognitively expertise is about the the number of mental schema that we have in our heads and how interconnected they are and whereas if we use it in a general sort of you know in the english language uh, it is how good at someone how, how proficient are they and the two things might not be the same because you can be cognitively an expert but an expert in the wrong things so you might have to develop loads of really bad habits which you are very efficiently using and loads of misconceptions which you really are fully embedded um, and everyone at some point will have I don't know played a sport or had a habit of something which you are it's such a habit you do it so automatically and it's not the right thing to do and it's very hard to break that so we need to just think about what we mean by expertise um, but secondly if I'm introducing something that's completely new to everyone in the school Well, at that stage actually it's fine to have everybody together and say let's break this down and show you what it looks like and then I'll need to give people a bit of scaffolding of right how are you going to then embed that in your existing practice and only then it might look a bit different for different teachers but if I'm saying I want to help everyone in my school ask better questions for example well for novice teachers they don't have a big bank of 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 questions in their head already and they have far fewer experiences and you know far fewer children to think about who they can really latch on to. Whereas an expert teacher, if I start telling you stuff, you probably think it sounds a bit familiar, you're not going to engage in it so well. And we know that experts generally learn a bit better when they're given a bit more space to kind of explore their own thinking, try things out a bit more, not completely unguided, but they need a bit more opportunity to lead some of their own learning. Whereas novices tend to get very rapidly overwhelmed and need a bit more structure and more examples and like, let me look at that and copy it. Um so we do need to vary it slightly. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we do need a mix of things like, um, so some people call it instructional coaching, I, I prefer the phrase, uh, the phrase pedagogical coaching, um, where, you know, some people do need, well, try this have a go just try it this way and um, so that pedagogical coaching approach versus a more reflective approach why did you do that explain that how did it go and then also uh, lesson study inquiry research type models where you say what would make that better what would it look like how could you do that what's the problem here how will you know if it's made a difference and depend you need to listen carefully to the teacher and their level of confidence and their level of expertise and work out when to challenge and when not to so as ever learning is very complex but you, it's almost, you know, the difference if you had an eight year old and an 18 year old and you're trying to teach a maths lesson. Well, you know, sometimes you could say neither of you ever heard of this. Let's start from scratch. But here's something that you probably at least one of you would have heard more about. Now I'll have to differentiate.
0: Right. Thank you. And it can I, I'm going to stick with this, this idea of expert because you mentioned it earlier on when we were talking about the responsive professional learning cycle. What role should should a, a, an expert play in professional learning? So what I mean by that is, is someone who who come out with your school that comes in, who has a deep body of knowledge on se- a certain pedagogical technique or, or something within education,
1: what role should they play in, in, a, in, a, in a, a teacher's professional development? Um, one of the things that is very interesting is how um, there's a, a very strong literature that professional learning generally works much well, generally works more effectively if you have the opportunity to work with someone who is more expert than you, who knows more about this. It's not always the case. There are examples where essentially just teachers pairing up and helping each other can work. But generally speaking, professional learning is more effective if if, if I went back into the classroom right now, if I was able to work alongside a really, really experienced expert in a particular topic, for example. Um, And it has a number of roles. Uh, So thinking about all the things we talked about before, I would want to work alongside another colleague and I want to see through their eyes. So I want them to look at a classroom. Maybe we look at a video together or they're watching a lesson with me and they're pointing out the really key things. I go, Oh, that's really interesting. I'd have never, never noticed that. Or they say, look at the way they're explaining this or the way they're saying that or the way that child is behaving over there. So I need to see through their eyes. I need to, Um, Plan with them and they say, Well, actually, no, I would do this before this because you might get this problem. And actually, I want to help them explain the curriculum to me and why things flow together and why you might want to spend longer on this before you go on to this. I'd like to see them teaching. And then, not only that, but I'd maybe like to then watch the video back with them and they explain the thinking behind what they're doing. And they were explaining how at that moment I was deciding whether to do this or not. I had this in my head, but I didn't do it because this was happening. Um, I'd like to maybe plan with them and help them. Um, let them say, well, actually, you could try this activity here and, and use some of that expertise. But also, I'd like to get them to challenge me a bit. And when I say, OK, you know, I did that, I differentiated this way. And they said, well, actually, why couldn't that child access the same as that? And I'd like them to challenge my expectations and say, actually, I noticed as soon as you went over to that student, you sort of cramped down and tried to give them a bit more help. And I think they immediately saw that as, oh, I, you know, you didn't think they'd do well. So you thought they needed help. Um, And actually, I don't think you did. I think you could just leave them and challenge them much harder. I need that challenge and I need the experts to disrupt my existing thinking because after a while, really powerful professional learning is not just additive. It needs to be disruptive. It needs to challenge my existing habits of thinking, my existing expectations and turn that into new ways of thinking and new ways of seeing. So experts have to play lots of different roles and they translate expertise for us. They give us new insights, they give us things to practice, they give us things to watch, they help us evaluate impact, they help us uh, connect with other people and say, you might like to go and see. So there are lots of different roles that an expert can play. And I think it's a really powerful role for teachers as we grow in our profession to become that expert coach for other teachers. I
0: certainly like that idea of being the expert coach for a, for a younger teacher and support them. And I like that also that kind of imagery you present with disrupting their thinking and, and shaking, them, shaking that thinking up and then allowing them to form new schema and, and be able to see things a little bit differently. You're right in the, in, in the book, Going Back to Unleashing Great Teaching, you're right there that when planning professional learning, the most successful schools create plans that span a whole year. Why is that model of a whole year
1: as opposed to, to weekly or monthly much more successful? Well um, what we try and do when we take really novice teachers beginning teachers is we you know you, you sort of say um, you try and get them away from planning minute by minute to plan the whole lesson and eventually plan the whole topic right um, because you need people to zoom out and see the big picture um, and this exactly the same is true of professional learning so uh, if I, if you gave me a job Um, at a school in charge of CPD for next year, I would say, right, show me all of the moments where people can do professional learning. So I'd want to see staff meetings, whole staff meetings, uh, phase or subject meetings or year meetings, I'd want to see uh, inset days, I'd want to see um, any times where people come together more informally, I'd want to see line management meetings and when they happen, so the regular small catch-ups and the more formal appraisal. I'd want to see any times where people are likely to get out and see each other's lessons or someone come in. And I want to have all of those mapped out. And then I would want to um, find out what are the key priorities. So I'd want to say, well, what's the big, really big improvement priority for us as a school? Um, and how do I create a rhythm where we explore it we come back we try things out we go away we reflect in our year teams or subject teams and we come back and then that's picked up in the next line management meeting and so on and so forth and then I'd want to give some space for teams so I'd want to say okay so each of my subject teams or phase teams uh, or year teams um, I want you to say what's your key development area and how are you going to spread that across the year as well And then I'd also want to give people space to explore what's going to be an issue for their particular classes or their own career development and then find space for that to happen as well. And then I would try, not easy, but I would try and leave a bit of flex room and say that's to be used nearer the time. And it might be we say we'll give that time back or we'll say, okay, stuff always turns up. But I need a bit of flex room during the year because otherwise an overly packed CPD plan will always get knocked off course. And then everyone will say, well, it looks like that now, but it'll never happen that way. So I need to plan a lot, and that enables me as a teacher to see how I'll be coming back to this, when I'll have to talk to people again, who else is picking it up. As a line manager, I can see what people will do and when I can discuss it. As a middle leader, I know how my middle leadership meetings connect to what everyone is going on and I can help set my agendas, but also show me this plan for the year ahead. As a senior leader, you say, well, you know, all right staff, here's the plan, what could go wrong? What are we missing? How how, how could we tweak this? And then if I go to you and give some ideas and what everybody else does and you say right we heard these are the key messages here's what we'll tweak then I feel wow yeah I really feel listened to and look how they've tweaked the plan and then when I see it in the in the the next year I've thought it through I'll understand how it changes and I'll really be connected to the plan so planning ahead um, gives us something to uh, sort of a structure uh, helps everybody plan helps everybody see their own role in the future helps everybody see how their professional learning contributes to the big picture and also, if we do need to deviate from it, we all know how, it, how the structure remains. And it's not just, I don't know, I have no idea what's going on. You're driving. I'm just sat here reading my book. I can't contribute, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important to do that. And it takes a bit of a while to get there because initially people will say, Oh, we won't know what we'll need in the terms time. But hell, it's, not, it's exactly the same way we do with children. Again, here's, the, here's the, what the year looks like here's how everything fits together. I'm going to keep coming back to it and keep helping you see how this learning fits into the big picture. And eventually I'll help you build up the, the sort of the, um, you know, the, hunt, the the view from 100 feet. So you can really, the bird's eye view, you can really see how everything fits together.
0: Certainly, I'm enjoying the, the parallels you've made kind of a few times between children learning and teacher learning kind of fall in the same format. I think that really brings to, to light how we should how teachers should think about their own professional development. You talk about um, schools creating a rhythm. So you mentioned this this across the whole school year, and you talk about a, creating a rhythm for professional learning. What, what what strategies can schools use to be able to create that rhythm for professional learning across a, an academic year?
1: Yeah. So th- this is the idea that you need to keep coming back to something, and if you leave it too long, then um, you cause yourself problems. So we five. Well, when I started, um, when I, when I was setting up teacher development trust. I think people at that time used to talk about professional learning being sustained over six months for example but I've seen so many examples where someone you know I'll do it this term and next term and the following term and no one remembers what they did it's like right we've met this term and then you know we met in September and then in January we'll come back and reflect what we did no one remembers that's not a rhythm that's just three little ad hoc meetings a rhythm looks like okay we've met this now next week we'll reflect again the week after we reflect again and try something new and it's it needs to feel a bit more like a pulse that goes through and I can see when the next one is and by the time I come back to it I won't have forgotten um Philip accordingly um fantastic researcher she has a lovely um she has a, a lovely way of thinking about this which is she said look the when you look at the national grid you see the uh the pylons um, and the pylons are there for support. They're the thing which happen to have that need there regularly, that support, that their structure, but actually the learning is what happens in between. And that's the, that's the cables that flow in between. And if you don't have enough supports in place, the learning sags, right? The, 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 the cables sag. So it's about making sure that even though those moments where you're coming together are a key part of the structure, it's the learning needs to continue between. You need to have enough structure, but not too much that the learning can move and flow from week to week and from term to term. And I think that's a really important thing. So this idea of rhythm, coming back to things again and again is important. However, you can overdo it. You can say, great, we're all going to look at, um, I don't know, a particular technique or we're going to look at reading or we're going to look at vocabulary and we're going to just relentlessly hit the same thing over and over and over again and again and again. And everyone kind of says, but we're ready to move on. you know. So you've got to be responsive about it. You need to have the structure and room for progression and room for change because everything should be responsive. And that's where being evaluative and being an evaluative practitioner comes in because
0: if it's, if it's too much, then we need to reflect, well, we're, we're now not making an impact, we need to move on to something bigger. Um, I wanna ask you, how can a, how can a teacher draw upon the, the collective expertise of the profession? I really like that that phrase. And, and what would you encourage them to, to do so they can draw upon that collective expertise?
1: I think I first heard this phrase from um, Dame Alison Peacock um, who's just one of my inspirations she's absolutely amazing Um, and this idea of the collective wisdom and the collective expertise of the profession is very important Um, when you go to a hospital you don't want to have someone do you know give you the medication that they happen to think is best you want them to draw on the collective expertise of the medical profession Um, you want to have surgery done um, not in a way that was done 50 years ago because someone happens to have never done any updates. You want them to use the collective wisdom of the whole medical profession and all of the researchers and do that. Similarly, you don't want a building built the way it was 50 years ago just because someone has never trained again. You want to, you know, someone to be up to date. Same with lawyers, you want them to be up to date with case law. So we have to do that as teachers. You know, We can't just say, oh, well, this will do, this will be fine. And the problem is also, if we're not saying we have a body of expertise as a profession, then it's, you know, oh, we're, a, we're trying to say we're a highly esteemed profession. Oh, but by the way, um, anyone could just wander off the street and as long as they went to school 30 years ago, they'll kind of know what to do. And that doesn't even esteem us as a profession, you know? So how do we do this? Well, it requires us to constantly be saying to the people, is there a better way to teach this? Could I help more children more quickly access more deeply with more inspiration and more, you know, more future learning? Um, and that requires constant learning from each other and with each other and it requires us to constantly say i really love this way of doing things but actually maybe there might be a better way because you don't want your medical practitioner to say yeah but i love this way i really enjoy doing the operation this way if someone has proven there maybe is a better way to do it we have to be ready to let go of things um, and we have to be listening all the time now i think things like the charters college of teaching and their impact journal intensely powerful absolutely brilliant journal constantly summarising research, making it accessible. Um, And then there are events like research ed, there's all sorts of exciting online conferences, there's books and all these sorts of things. Um, And I think, you know, we really need to look out for what the best ideas are and how they're best summarised and really engage with them. Um, But also make sure that in our local area, in our local authority, in our group of schools, we should never just be experiencing the best teachings going on in our school, but we should be experiencing the best teaching that goes on in our whole area. Um, and I think too many teachers, and I was certainly one of them, almost all of the time, the only teaching I was exposed to was mine. Pretty much never even saw anybody in anyone else's classroom. It shouldn't be something you do once a year. We should be constantly exposed to seeing other people teach and not just seeing it in case I only see the surface features. I need to hear them talk about it and why they do it. Um, And so this idea of being in and out of each other's classrooms all the time is very powerful. Teachers who improve really quickly, schools that improve really quickly, are always in and out of each other's classrooms in a really developmental way. And the sad fact is, in some systems, some schools, some groups, some authorities, we used to have such terribly bad practice for performance management and accountability that we as a profession adopted a defensive stance of don't come into my classroom. You know, I'll make things less bad by stopping you from coming into my classroom. And that's so sad because that literally blocks us. It blocks damage being done by just rubbish lesson observations and accountability. But it also stops us teaching with collective wisdom. So we have to just say, okay, look, performance management has got to be better. But we have to be reading a lot in and out of each other's classrooms a lot, talking about pedagogy a lot. Um, and that's going to be incredibly important. So I would say, I don't think there's a single person in school who shouldn't be connected with people in other schools who do the same job. You could be the caretaker, you could be the cook, you could be the SENCO, you could be the uh, maths lead, you could be a deputy head, you could be the safeguarding lead. You should be in a network with other people in your area and national areas, national networks of expertise, contributing and listening to the best expertise and questioning, 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 how can we do this better? Well, that's a wonderful,
0: wonderful rallying call for for teachers and school leaders everywhere to to make sure that they get out of their silos and, and experience the collective wisdom. My last question in the interview section before we move on to the final three is, is that there is so much research and evidence reviews into effective teaching. Where would you suggest a teacher
1: listening could start so that they can take ownership of the professional learning? It's such an interesting thing um, about, especially this idea of ownership is a really interesting one as well. Um, And actually, if I'm going to learn really effectively as a teacher, I need to be intensely curious, self-questioning. I need to be evaluative. I need to be always challenging myself. Um, But I also have to work in a school where people are creating that professional learning space for me. There will be people listening to this who think that's all very well. My leaders don't do that. Let me make a plea to you. Don't, let them grind you down. There are better schools. I absolutely guarantee, if you're thinking, "Oh, mm, I don't get that, there is a school probably not too far from you. Actually, I'm meant to be fair, there are some people who might be teaching in the Highlands where there aren't any other schools near them. But um, there are other schools where you really will get a rich, nurturing environment where even if you're finding this whole thing quite tough and you're questioning if teaching is for you, somewhere else will bring your teaching back alive. So please don't, you know, don't think, oh well, there's nothing I can do. Second thing is there are people moving into leadership and thinking, I'd like to make that change. We can do that. You know, We can create these environments where, which are rich and nurturing and where we can get that expertise. So, okay, so then how? where do we start? Um, well, I mean, there are some fantastic books on this. Um, I think the Evidence-Based Education just came out with their new framework um, of great teaching. That's a fantastic place to start. Um, I think Daniel Mers and um, David Reynolds wrote a really great book as well um, on evidence-based teaching. Um, there are the books by Tom Sherrington, Exploring the Ideas of Barack Rosenstein. Um there are, there are loads of really good books out there on teaching. You know, if you're a maths teacher, Craig Barton's books, you know, so many different books out there. Um, and I think it's a great place to start, but you won't transform your teaching by reading a book. In fact, the worry is you might transform your teaching in as much as you think you've, you're thinking differently, but your practice is the same, but you haven't even noticed your practice hasn't changed. So the book is the starting point. It's the, it's the observation. It's the reflection. It's watching others and getting others to watch you. You have to assume there are things you think you're doing that you're not. There are things you think you've pushed to the limit that you haven't. There are things you think you understand that maybe you haven't. And that's how you improve. You constantly need to say, OK, what have I got wrong? What do I need to push further? Who can I watch to really challenge me and make me go further? So be open. Read some of these great um, resources. But don't just say, yeah, I recognize that. Never treat a book like a horoscope. And if you say, yeah, I recognize that. And that sounds a bit like us. Maybe with these tweaks. Say, OK, so this is opening a door to a whole new world, a whole new layer of complexity of thinking. I need to access that.
0: So it's a wonderful way to, to finish. I was smiling the whole way you, as you were you are were, you were saying that, but it's so much more than just reading something and think you do it. have to, it's, it's everything. It's so nuanced, everything we do with the observations, the discussions with colleagues and and as you kind of linking back to the last question about not sticking in a silo and, and making sure yeah. that you you're
1: accepting the collective wisdom of our profession. We're going to move on now to... Karen, I'm just just really sorry. I'm just going to really quickly jump in and say there. if anyone wants a really good example of that is I could watch every episode of MasterChef and read every single cookbook. And that doesn't even though I might go, oh, yeah, I really understand all my cooking now. It does not make me more skillful. And it does not make me a Michelin star chef. And that I really have to practice. And probably have some chefs, you know, shouting at me and challenging me and training me until I really absorb it. And it's going to be the same. So just because you're feeling inspired by watching loads of researchers, listening to loads of podcasts, reading loads of books, that's just the starting point.
0: Exactly. And, I, and I, during this time of of locked in, I can imagine so many, so many teaching professionals who've who've read books and watched so many talks. It's it's about what happens next, and it's about the implementation and the action that, that comes thereafter. So <laughs> we're going to move on to my final three questions, David. With the questions which I ask every guest. But before we do that, can you quickly tell listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about you, where they can find out about the TV the Teacher Development Trust, sorry, and also where they can buy your book? Yes,
1: absolutely. So the book is available at every good bookstore. Um, you can buy on Amazon. Buy anywhere. Unleashing Great Teaching by David Weston and Bridget Clay. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, either the Teacher Development Trust, which is at Teacher Dev Trust or uh, my personal account is at informed underscore edu i-n-f-o-r-m-e-d underscore edu informed edu for a stupid historical reasons that i now regret um and i yeah i tweet lots of research type things on there um our website is tdtrust.org that's tango delta tango tdtrust.org and um if you have a little look you can see lots of videos and things you can find our channel on youtube and see a few more bits and pieces on there as well
0: brilliant and i also like to signpost uh nailers natter podcast because he he's been quite good at signposting mine as of late the tdt do a, a little section every
1: every week on we
0: on, on
1: Naylor's we Natter. Do. so the wonderful phil nailer actually who um he worked uh he he worked for and with tdt for a little while doing a project up in blackpool was one of our expert advisors and his podcast nailers natter um, as like yours, really great, great, great selection of guests, and we always weasel in a few minutes to talk about something about professional learning.
0: You certainly do. I, I do enjoy listening to listening to the wee snippets from the from the TDT. Um, so, my first question on the the final three, David, is what book or
1: text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? So, I think this is definitely um, remembering a book I read. I think in two thousand and nine or ten. Um, and I think it was called Evidence-Based Teaching by Jeff Petty and it was uh, an utterly mind-blowing experience. i just joined Twitter, so this must have been 2010, i just joined joined Twitter and I read a blog by someone who mentioned this book by Jeff Petty and I thought that sounds really interesting and I just went and ordered it on Amazon and it arrived and I literally couldn't believe what I was seeing. It summarised the work of Hattie and Marzano and some other studies and I had never had any idea that all this research about pedagogy was out there. Absolutely no idea. And um, from that point on, I just got completely obsessed about that book and trying new things in exactly the way I've just said you shouldn't. So I was like, oh, try that. Do that for one lesson and then another idea. And I would, you know, constantly magpie ideas, which I didn't sustain, to the point where I still remember starting a lesson with some year 11s, um, a physics lesson. I'd do a big Venn diagram on the board and I had loads of sticky things and uh, i remember one of my students going oh sir it's one of your twitter ideas isn't it um damning but true um and uh, yeah you know i try loads of things really briefly but that book blew my mind and made me realize just how much there is still to learn um and i think you know i think it's still in publication and actually nowadays there's so many other books as well but it definitely was a turning point for me when i suddenly realized i'm not just part of a profession where you have to do a three-part lesson or you have to put your, you know, your sort of your waltz and wilfs on the board, or you have to, you know, it it always used to be just tips and tricks and this is good and this isn't. And suddenly I thought, wow, there's a research base here. There's real evidence and, and I too can have access to that.
0: Brilliant. I'm going to look into that book, and and you're right in saying there, there's so much that the books out. Just now, if, if you were to look at my my desk right now, it's just covered in in books. But there are <laughs> there are there are there are gems out there that really just blow your mind. And thank you for sharing that. the The second question is is this, David? If you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would it be?
1: That's so interesting. It's also really difficult to give one piece of advice to it that works really well for everybody but um it would probably be just get reading um and yeah they read lots more things get more questioning find ways and constantly read things with a view to how can i try this how would i know i've got experts in it and how would i know if it's made a difference but reading and reading and reading and just engaging and if you're thinking to yourself i haven't got time to read then essentially you're saying. I want to be doing my job no better next year than I do this year. Um, so, you know, be kind to yourself, give yourself some learning space. And even if it's 20 minutes a week, that you say, this is a little bit of time for me, you, then, you know, you need to do that. Um, you need to make that time for yourself. Because um, it nurtures you, it allows your mind to expand. It just allows you to imagine what future possibilities could be. It gen- it's, inspires curiosity about different ways of doing things. Um, so I think that's really important. With the caveat that you know, reading is just the starting point.
0: It certainly is. It's about about the action. And I did read that interesting stat well ago that if you read for twenty minutes every day, you could read twelve books a year, based on the average size of of, of a book being two hundred pages, etc. And obviously depending on your your reading time. So I thought that, was, that that was quite interesting in terms of how you accumulate knowledge over time. Yeah, well, you probably
1: also say listen to podcasts as well, because of course you can do that on your way to and from school. Listening to podcasts like this, for example, keep listening to those. Certainly, thank you.
0: Listen, to, sorry for mumbling words. Treating the, your traffic as the traffic university when you're when you're driving, you're maximizing exactly. the time by learning and, and listening to audiobooks and so on. I def, I would definitely advise that. I've definitely advised listen, listen to this podcast. My final question is is one that really fascinates me, and the range of of responses that I get from guests really is 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 far ranging. It's interesting to hear different people's viewpoints, and it, and it's this one. What do you think most gets in the way of just
1: great teaching in our classrooms? Gosh, lots of different ways to answer that. Probably what stands in the way of really great teaching is your habits of your current teaching. So that would be for particularly for people who maybe are from a few years into the profession onwards. Um, All of your existing habits are the things which if you just let them stay and define you as your habits will probably stop you from being really great. Obviously there's a few people who are really fantastic already and there's people who haven't really established their habits. But I think for most of us, all the defaults that I have, the default way of seeing my classroom, the default way of figuring out what the issues are in my classroom, the default ways of working out what I think is possible from different students, the default way of explaining things and of planning things, well, that's probably in the way of being better. And actually it's only by disrupting those and finding better ways to do those things but I can really become brilliant in the same way that, you know, if I'm a tennis player, if I'm a chess player, if I'm a musician, the way I currently do things, well, I need to kind of twi- I need to massively hone and refine. And in some cases just stop doing it that way and do something much better if I'm going to get better at it. So, um, you know, just, just carrying on doing what you're doing now is a really good recipe to not become great. Um, uh, you don't just magically get become a better chef by just cooking every day. You need to be really thoughtful, really deliberate, and get lots of you know really well structured practice and that means stopping doing some of the things you do right now
0: certainly does and I think that's that kind of ties the the whole episode wonderfully by by the advice you gave there so that brings us to the end david I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you so so much for giving me so much of your time this morning. I really I appreciate appreciate it I really enjoyed the discussion and and I certainly took a lot from it and I'm sure listeners certainly will.
1: Uh, real pleasure thank you so much for having me and um yeah i you know i i hope people keep listening and keep thinking so uh, and if anyone wants to reach out and have a further conversation i'd really welcome you know a tweet or an email or anything right. thank you thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast
0: until next time teach with joy